Welcome to Animal Airwaves Live here on Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM. This is our weekly hour-long call-in show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm Dana Hill, host of the program. Happy to welcome back from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine and Zoological Medicine Specialist, Dr. Daryl Hurd. And we're going to be talking about what you might call exotic pets, maybe non-traditional sorts of pets. Perhaps that could be things like ferrets or lizards or snakes, iguanas, other things like that. And I hope you can join the conversation as we talk about it. 352-392-8989 is the number. Animal Airwaves Live will be back after this news from NPR. Welcome to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. I'm Dana Hill, and this is our weekly hour-long call-in show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm happy to welcome back to the program from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine, Dr. Daryl Hurd. He's a zoological medicine specialist, and we're going to talk about some of the more common non-traditional sorts of pets and what their needs are and maybe the pros and cons of having an exotic pet. But first, uh, welcome back to the program. I'm so glad to have you here. Yeah, it's great to be here, Dana. It's a great privilege to be able to come back again and talk about my speciality. Yeah, <laughs> and your speciality is zoological medicine. And can you describe to us kind of what falls into that category of veterinary work? Well, it really is a, a catch-all, and, and we sometimes joke about it as being the speciality of not specializing. So we deal with any animals that are considered non-domestic, although um, our purview also includes things like rabbits and rodents. I talked about rabbits the last time I was on, but reptiles, birds, uh, zoo animals. Uh, we also work with injured wildlife. So whatever, um, people have a reason to bring an animal in that's considered a non-traditional animal. So this means not necessarily dogs and cats, not cows and horses, but just about anything else that someone might have. And it occurs to me that certainly dogs and cats are far and away the most popular pets, but rabbits are not uncommon pets, nor are birds and iguanas and things like that all over People have these uh, as, uh, as companion animals. And yet there's a big difference to me, it seems, between something like an iguana and something like a bird and something like a rabbit. These are all very different kinds of creatures, both anatomically and, you know, the behaviors. When you study exotic animals or non-traditional pets, uh, how do you keep track of all of these? These are really different animals, I guess. Yeah, I think I think a lot of it is is obviously as a we've got to study and research, but it's a part of the challenge and what what excites me about this particular area is that we do have to have a good understanding of comparative anatomy and physiology and pharmacology and behavior and ecology. And the ecology plays a big role if you're taking a wild animal and putting it into captivity. You need to know what the environmental requirements are, the nutrition, and also the diseases are also going to be exacerbated by putting them into captivity as well. Well, since you mentioned the captivity, maybe we can and talk about this and uh, not to get so controversial here, but some animals that we might consider exotic pets 
are animals that really aren't domestic animals. Right? Yep. They're not. They're not designed, or they're not sort of bred to be companion animals. Yeah, and and particular ones that are very recently removed from the wild. Um, that they certainly have a greater range of requirements that are not met by a captive situation or the captive situation produces stress which leads to other you know disease related issues and that's why you know animals were domesticated you know so that because of the characteristics of the wild animal doesn't necessarily make them good for captivity or for that matter for pets um, so some animals may look exciting it might be it might be really interesting to have them as a pet. However, it's not a good idea both ways in terms of the animal. Uh, we often as veterinarians see the end point of uh, poor husbandry mostly coming through ignorance. Um, and also the other, as I mentioned, just the cap captive environment is stressful for these wild animals versus a domesticated animal really is accustomed to people and to the captive environment. So my recommendation really is not to have a wild animal as a pet um, or an exotic animal for that matter. Um, there are many, um, you know, I tell people if they want a wild cat, then maybe what they should do is go to the shelter and look for a domestic cat that looks like a wild cat <laughs> but is domesticated. So. Yes, and uh, and I can tell you that uh, around your neighborhoods, you may find some cats that are virtually wild. <laughs> and if you want to try and befriend them, uh, I would encourage you to do so. Uh, we talked about rabbits the last time. Rabbits, to me, don't seem that far removed from, you know, almost domesticated animals, right? I mean, rabbits can I, be kept as pets I, with with pretty good success. Yeah, I mean, the, the, domestic, the domesticated rabbit is the domestic species and probably has been domesticated longer than some of the other more traditional domestic animals um, because they were small and they could be used primarily for food and for fur. Um, so the European rabbit, where the domestic rabbit is derived from, um, is certainly a domesticated animal. And there are many breeds. You can actually get breeds of domestic rabbit that look like wild rabbits. And then there's even some breeds of rabbit that look like hares, uh, which is not is a totally different species. Yeah. What about something like a ferret? A lot of people love ferrets and are really into ferrets. And I don't really know much about them. Are ferrets members of the weasel family? Yes, they are. They're mustelids. Um, that's one of the problems with ownership of um, ferrets is that they do have a very distinctive odor. Um, many of the commercially uh, available um, ferrets that you can buy as a pet uh, are sold by one company, and they actually do a procedure called descenting, and they remove the anal glands uh, from these animals at a very young age. There's a lot of ethical considerations with that. There's some people that are adamant against that, but unfortunately the ferrets you can buy in North America are going to already be um, descented. However, these animals still have uh, glandular secretions from other areas, sebaceous glands on their body. So they uh, do, as I said, have a distinctive odor. So that's one of the reasons not to, some people don't like to own them. When we talk about these animals, though, that are non-traditional sort of pet animals, if it requires that they have some sort of procedure to make them more acceptable to one who wants to keep the animal in a house, for instance, mm -hmm. 
I see what you mean about ethical questions uh, about this, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, there are, there are questions, but then you, then you look at the domestic dog and cat. I mean, obviously, for good reason, um, these animals are contraceptive, either through you know castration or spray or spaying. And it's the same with some of the other non-traditional pets. We do that. But then you come into the issue of you know, making a wild animal more acceptable for captivity by doing things like dechloring the animal yes. or the procedure of taking out the canines. And for us, we don't do this. We don't modify wild animals except perhaps for contraception so that they're not continuously reproduced in captivity. But and we certainly don't remove canines and we don't declaw uh, wild animals. And I think that declawing, if I had to guess, is a procedure that's probably done less frequently today than it was in the past. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big issue in um, domestic cats um, with veterinarians falling on one side or the other in terms of the ethical implications. I come from Australia. That's where I graduated from. In Australia and also in Europe, it's considered... Um, unethical or inhumane as a veterinarian to do that. So we don't do those procedures similar for ear cropping and tail docking uh, of domestic animals. Um, there's gray areas then when it comes to wild animals, but as I said, we don't modify. So we wouldn't have you buy a pet bobcat and then you wanted it declawed so it would be much safer. Right. You know, so, and there are also some issues with the bigger non-domestic cats. The, it's shown that the, the animals which are declawed as young animals they have many musculoskeletal problems uh, when they are older in that their feet break down. Um, they can also be done inappropriately, and we've actually had to fix bad declaws, although we don't declaw non-domestic feelers. We've had to deal with those um, because people have had them as pets and some other people have declawed them either themselves or another veterinarian has done it. It may be that many of the sort of non-domesticated felids, as you say, are kept as pets because they had been rescues maybe from various organizations. Uh, I hear from time to time about sort of wildlife rescue groups that maybe have a, a panther or, mm. you know, some sort of uh, larger, larger cat. Um, and these cats um, are fascinating animals. Anyone mm. who's ever been around a, a large cat will know what I'm talking about. It's just uh, really miracles of nature, practically. Just w amazing mm. creatures, beautiful, um, but really impressive. And if you've ever been around these animals and, and seen them sort of in captivity, you you wonder, well, oh, gosh, you know, this probably isn't what this animal wants to be doing. Mm -hmm. um, and for, for many reasons, of course, in these rescue sort of organizations, it is necessary for these animals to be cared for this way because mm -hmm. they're not able to be released, you know, into the wild again. What are some of the challenges that are uh, that exist for someone trying to keep uh, a large cat like this? Well, you know, the first thing is, and, it, and it's a real, it's really good, is that the Florida Wildlife Conservation Commission regulates the, the ownership of you know, non-domestic felids and other animals. And there are licensing categories that you have to you know, fulfill. And then there's certain requirements that they have. Unfortunately, they're minimum requirements in terms of caging and area exercise. But most of these big cats are big animals. And they do, in the wild, would normally have a large area to roam over. And so 
Um, by putting them into small cages, you're turning them into couch potatoes. Um, and so, and you're not providing a very fulfilling or enriching environment. The other thing that people don't think about, and this is where um, pet or private ownership of these animals comes unstuck, is that a tiger, if you feed it appropriately and good quality food, you're probably spending two or $300 a month um, on maintaining that animal. Multiply that by a variety of, or a number of other animals. Uh, and then you think about lions, which really are a group uh, animal. You need to house them or should be housing them in multiple you know, prides and so forth, or at least with other companions. Right. So, so certainly the budget or the money considerations really uh, add up. A, a tiger or a Florida panther, these are creatures that on their own would live in an area of square miles probably, right? I mean, they're yeah. hunting in large areas. Yeah, and that's, a, and that's an issue with the conservation of these species. So, you know, now the Florida panther, which is a subspecies of the uh, cougar or puma, uh, which ranges through North and South America, they, they are doing very well in South Florida. Uh, and now the next big issue is you know, allowing them to move into new areas such as North Florida or into bigger areas so that they can maintain their population growth. Uh, and so, and that's also an issue with tigers. There is no room, more room for tigers in terms of habitat to be reintroduced back into the wild. Um, and that's a big limitation on the survival of tigers is habitat availability. Right. And of course, with things like Florida panthers, you run into the conflict with with human beings. I, I think that as a person, I definitely admire the Florida panther. I think it's an amazing animal. I want it to do very well. But then you also consider, well, if Florida panthers are living in parts of the state where they might encounter an, uh, human beings more often, there is potential for conflict there. You could have situations that would jeopardize the safety of Florida panthers and perhaps even people as well. Yeah, and, you know, and certainly in, uh, there are well-documented cases of cougars um, preying on people, not Florida panthers that I know of, but it's a big or a major consideration. I mean, I, I would be concerned about you know, my children, you know, small children being in uh, an environment where there is, you know, a high population of Florida panthers. But then that's part of also us as people, we want to maintain a relationship with w wilderness or natural areas is that we've got to, to live with that. Um, you know, a similar situation occurs. I, mean, I was in Alaska for some period of time and Anchorage, Alaska has moose, and bear, you know, in the yeah. in the suburban area, much you know, much larger animals, and people have gotten to some. Most people have gotten to some degree used to uh, living in the environment with those animals, and also appreciating that they can interact with those animals. Right, you you fear a little bit for your safety. Yeah. Um, certainly, Florida, fortunately, doesn't have uh, grizzly bears like they yeah. do in Alaska, <laughs> uh, or polar bears, the animals that could potentially be quite dangerous to people. Yet, with something like a Florida panther, an endangered species, am yes. I correct? You don't want any more potential for uh, accidents with automobiles, right? Mm -hmm. that, would, yeah. that would really jeopardize the safety of these animals. Um, it's, it's a really tough balance. It must be hard to be uh, someone who 
has to, as part of your work, worry about the ecology and health mm-hmm. of, of these animals that are vulnerable. Yeah, I mean, the, the uh, part of our job, you know, as I mentioned, we work with zoo animals, and that's one of the considerations. Well, you know, in the past, zoos were based, were there for exhibit of animals or exhibition, but they also now have switched over to their role as being somewhat a reserve for animals that may need to be, they're endangered in the wild, and they may need to have their population replenished or added to. So... Um, you know, those are certainly important considerations. But, you know, hit by car is one of the major uh, causes of mortality for the Florida panther. And that's one of the reasons they've talked about or they've implemented, particularly on alligator, uh, the uh, alligator alley in South Florida, has a number of wildlife underpasses. And then some other areas of the state also have wildlife overpasses. Yeah. So. I think if you're driving down 441 through Payne's mm-hmm. Prairie, there are some routes underneath the highway there. Yeah. Animals can move from one side to the other, which is great because if you've ever driven on 441 going um, north or south, particularly around that area at night, mm-hmm. Well, you turn your brights on, and on the side of the road, you see certainly deer, um, mm-hmm. other kinds of animals too, and and it's it makes you makes you sort of grab the wheel with both hands, and <laughs> and uh, you drive a little bit slower as as you probably should. With people wanting to keep non traditional pets, how does one? M- manage expectations of what these animals can really be to people, right? Because we are all used to cats and dogs, animals that will go for us on a walk or jump up and sit with us on our laps, um, that will cuddle with us. I mean, I've said so many times on this show that, you know, I've got a kitty who really likes being with me. She enjoys um, human companionship. Some exotic animals are... I imagine not interested in human <laughs> companionship. It's just not programmed in their brains to think of humans as as companions. Well, that, well, that's the important thing. I mean, we are seen as a potential threat to these animals, and that's part of the process of domestication is having those animals get used to um, people being ke- uh, people keeping them um, as for food or as pets and so you will literally do breed out those those fears uh, out of those animals so the animal that is more recently removed from the wild is going to still be very wild and it's going to be either flee or it's going to be stressed or it's going to defend itself from a perceived threat which is us yeah what a what a curious process it must be right because that is to say that our dogs and cats in, uh, aside from instances, unfortunately, of abuse, um, my cat doesn't fear me at all. Um, your dog may not fear you at all. You are this animal's best friend. Uh, <laughs> it thinks of you as this really great thing that's, you know, whether or not it knows that you're a human being and have consciousness, I, I don't know. But it certainly thinks this is the source of my food and my happiness. And this is this guy does all sorts of fun stuff with me. Whereas if you're talking about I don't know, keeping something like a bobcat. Well, that bobcat is, you are not fun to this bobcat, right? No, I mean, yes, keep, keep getting back. You're a threat to this animal. And so if you can find this you know, the, in a limited environment, um, they're either going to defend themselves against you, that means attacking you, or they're going to be in a situation where they want to constantly flee. And that in itself 
engenders some physiological changes that are not good for the animals. It affects their immune system, their overall well-being. They're more likely to develop diseases and so forth uh, in that situation. So, no, keeping those animals in captivity is not good. You're listening to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. I'm Dan Hill talking with Dr. Daryl Hurd, who is a zoological medicine specialist. And we're talking about exotic pet ownership, maybe non-traditional pet ownership. I think that there are some pets, while perhaps exotic uh, in, in, in nature, have been kept as pets for a long time. I have, um, for as long as I can remember, known people who have kept, say, maybe pet snakes Mm-hmm. pet birds, pet iguanas, mm-hmm. right? These are animals that perhaps are uh, not as recently removed f- mm-hmm. uh, as sort of, I think, the parlance you, you used. Um, are these animals in a position to be kept as pets without causing them a great deal of distress? Um, yeah, I mean, certainly the animals that you do see that survive and breed in a captive environment are the ones that are uh, best acclimated to, to living in that captive environment. So there is a way, in some way, there's a self-selection process. If you get, there are certain species of reptiles that you bring them into captivity and it's very likely going to have a high mortality um, very rapidly but versus some other species that seem to have adapted, you know, very, very well. And the same is true even, you know, a hundred years ago with the, the Australian parakeet or budgerigar. I mean, that animal does very well in captivity because it can um, exist on a, a poor diet and breed and is very accepting of captivity, you know, group, you know, housing versus some other bird species never made it, you know. So that's why the, the budgie is a common pet, you know, some other exotic birds just don't, right. are not seen in cages. And I, so, I've often thought about how there are some birds that... Uh, are ubiquitous in Florida that you would never see as pets. Uh, For example, uh, blue jays I see all the time. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine a blue jay wanting to be your pet. I don't see that it would do very well in captivity. Likewise, cardinals or mockingbirds, these are animals that uh, are all around, and yet you're much more likely to see a parakeet or a macaw or something like that being kept as a pet than some of these really common birds around here. And is that just because these animals uh, haven't over time been selected to be pets? Well, part of it is, yeah, they're not selected to be pets, but also there are good regulations in North America for not, you just can't go out and grab a blue jay and put it in a cage. There was, interestingly enough, you know, in the 19th century, people would go out like crows and ravens were very, very popular pets. You know, Edgar Allan Poe had a you know, a raven. And the reason they like those animals is because they're very intelligent and they can, to some degree, some of them can also mimic human voice and so forth. So that's probably the main reason you don't see these species um, commonly kept. I mean, the cardinal is a very beautiful, you know, small passerine and you could keep it in a cage. Um, The mortality would be higher than, say, going to a pet store and buying a pet canary. Um, So there are, there is a variation. There are some species that you know, definitely would not do very well, though. So. And really, why would you need to? You could just go outside mm-hmm. your front door right now and probably see two or three cardinals um, just hanging out. Yeah, and that's <laughs> the thing that, I, you know, you prefer to do is you go see, the appreciate the wildlife that you do have in the, your environment. And there is some very beautiful birds in this area. Well, while we're talking about birds, I do sometimes see people keep 
falcons of some sort, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And this is uh, any sort of raptor um, ownership is probably restricted and regulated, right? Yeah, it's very, very strictly regulated. Obviously, falconry is a very old, um, I don't know whether profession or sport. Um, part of it was for food, but it was a, a sport. Um, and it was actually confined to royalty. Um, but there is, uh, or there are people in North America that that are falconers. However, it is um, strictly regulated in terms of permitting. And to become a falconer, you have to spend, uh, I don't know how many hours it is, but a good number of hours, uh, formal hours with a master falconer. And then that person signs off and allows you to be able to to work with different uh, raptor species. And then you also are limited in terms of the species that you can work with. Um, So you might start out with some of the more common such as red-tailed, uh, red-tailed hawks and kestrels and so forth. And then as you show proficiency, you might move into some of the other species. But there are some species that you would never um, be able to, because of regulations, um, be able to work with. Um, but, the, but the falconers are important because, uh, you know, we work with injured wildlife, um, including raptors, and we fix fro- you know bra- broken wings and legs and so forth. And when during that the period and times of recuperation, those animals lose their fitness for going back into the wild. So, you know, a wild raptor is like an athlete, you know, and if they have taken off the, you know, not exercising, then they certainly get muscle atrophy and so forth. So what we do is we actually, once our birds are ready to start being rehabilitated, we send them down to uh, Audubon Raptor Rehab Center in Maitland, and they have some master falconers that are able to firstly in flight cages, but then also outside they can train birds to or exercise back to... uh, being able to be released back into the wild. That's fascinating because what would the risk be for these raptors to go back into the wild without having been rehabilitated? They could be vulnerable to what? Other raptors. Yeah, other other raptors, predators, you know, if they're not able to fly fast enough or even the same species, you know, you got to be really careful. You know, I've known with bald eagles, you know, you don't you don't, you need to know you want to return the animal to where it came from. And releasing a bald eagle or a young bald eagle into an area which is not their territory or where they came from can elicit an aggressive response from the pair that's defending that area. In North Florida, many people will have seen red-tailed hawks. You see red-tailed hawks all over the University of Florida campus. Uh, I see Mm -hmm. them regularly. Um, I see uh, osprey, I guess. Is that possible? Yeah. Um, And... Uh, I have been fortunate, too, to see bald eagles out at Lake Wahlberg, which mm-hmm. is a, a wonderful facility that people at the University of Florida can use. And it's south of uh, Payne's Prairie on Highway 441. And out there on the lake, you'll look up and you'll see these bald eagles kind of flying <laughs> around. And it's really amazing. And in, in fact, at the University of Florida, walking across campus as I do every day, I often will see red-tailed hawks. And if you catch them as they've... Uh, as they maybe have caught a squirrel, which they are, are quite apt to do, you can't help but marvel at how um, muscular and, and strong these animals look. They've got their talons that are perfectly suited to what they're doing, which is uh, not to be too gross, but essentially just disemboweling this squirrel. Um, and... And yet you uh, watch with amazement, too, as the mockingbirds and the blue jays fight off these red-tailed hawks. They seem to have no fear of these animals. But I always am aware that these are, these are wild animals. These, mm-hmm. are, these are animals that um, 
you know, are in their natural element, which happens to coincide with areas in which people live, right? Mm -hmm. um, that is to say the Osprey may have figured out, hey, it's pretty great to build our nests up here at the top of the lights at McKeithen Stadium. Yeah. The red-tailed hawks may have figured out, I can just hang out here at the top of the Rights Union and it gives me a pretty good view of what's going down and the uh, sort of open area, the lawn behind uh, Weimer Hall. Um, the public encounters these animals like this. Uh, and it is pretty good that these sanctuaries exist to rehabilitate these animals. Uh, the people who do this work, um, master falconers and whatnot, they have probably studied for quite a long time um, to learn the behavior and the health requirements of these animals. Yeah, I mean, definitely. That's what, as I mentioned, part of the requirements to become a falconer is you need to work with someone who is already you know, in that field. So that way you get the, you know, how to look after these animals and what are the issues with keeping them in captivity. I think it's a good time to take a break right now, Richard. So I want to remind people you're listening to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFT-FM. I'm Dane Hill, and I'm talking with Dr. Dara Hord from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine. When we come back, we're going to talk more about animals that you may keep at home and some good tips for how to make the best of it, keeping the animal happy and you happy too. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. I'm Dana Hill speaking with Dr. Daryl Hurd from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine. It occurs to me I never gave out the telephone number except for right at the top of the show. If you'd like to join the conversation, 352-392-8989. We spoke before about rabbits, mm -hmm. and I learned a lot about rabbits that I did not know. And, and I recall from our conversation uh, how shamefully ignorant I was about these animals, especially when it came to some assumptions that I had about behaviors and about the care of these animals. Um, but one thing that has stuck with me is the way that uh, rabbits actually can be kept as pets. And one can even go so far as to teaching a rabbit to use a litter box and and assuming that you can hide your electrical cords and things like that, you might be able to have a pretty good, happy relationship with a pet rabbit. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I've seen, I've, I've actually, you know, coming from Australia, the time I left, this is the early 80s, was you, know, you couldn't keep a rabbit as a private pet because of the issue with uh, wild, you know, rabbits being introduced into the environment to then working with rabbits and then, you know, seeing what they could do. I mean, seeing a rabbit play with a ball is quite amazing. You know, that's a... Uh, shows that they are very intelligent. They have a lot of play behavior. Um, and as, yeah, as I mentioned, they can be trained to use a litter, litter box. Um, they can be very, very affectionate. They certainly know who their owners are and the one that pats them and so forth. With someone or something like a rabbit, um, you are able to probably keep an animal like that, I assuming you have kept the environment, your home in this instance, mm -hmm. relatively safe of things that can harm the animal, you could potentially, while you're at home, allow the rabbit to kind of roam freely in the room. 
right? Yeah, I mean, that's what we recommend is obviously supervised um, activities. Um, but, you know, we, as I keep getting back is sometimes I'm, as a veterinarian, I see the bad end of, you know, what can happen. Yeah. It doesn't mean most animals will end up that way, but certainly supervised, um, acti- you know, activity is, is really, really important. But with other kinds of, let's say, non-traditional pets, creating a suitable habitat within your home is important. That is to say that um, some sort of lizard or a bird will need to be kept in its own enclosure. Yeah, and that's that's the crux of you know wanting to own some of these animals is that you need to investigate you know what are the requirements. And fortunately, there's really good information out there. There are books, and you can go. You can I mean you can talk to your local um, pet store. Um, you can also go online with a you know grain of salt, investigate uh, the information that's out there. There are clubs you know related to different groups of animals. There are you know herptile societies that are people that look after amphibians and reptiles. There's yeah. rabbit societies, guinea pig, anything that you want to keep pretty much. Um, there's a group out there that can provide you um, with the information. Well, let's go to the phones right now and talk to Mike in Bronson. Mike, welcome to Animal Airwaves Live. Hi, thank you for having me. Glad to. Um, reason I was calling in, I two things. I just encountered your zoological department over there at the University of Florida. I just brought in wounded woodpecker the other day, which was I didn't know you guys did wild animals over there. Mm-hmm. But um, I deal with the small animal clinic a lot, and of course I know the large animal clinic, and God, gotta love that emergency room. Mm-hmm. It's spectacular. But um, I do a lot of wild animals. I do, um, I'm a herpetologist. I do alligators, rattlesnakes, and you know, all kinds of snakes. I work in the Everglades a lot. And, um, but I also do a lot of domestic animals. I do animal rescue. I do cats and dogs, and I have a lot of mm-hmm. cats and dogs on some property that's set up for the animals. But I noticed something over the years, um, you know, I went them you know, the season comes where my cats were having kittens, and I've got them all fixed since then, of course, but so I got them all fixed. Uh, when the kittens um, and then the foxes had their babies and the raccoons had their babies and the possums brought up theirs, and they all came up to feed in the same area, I always noticed that back in... You know, before they had their babies, you know, they were at odds with each other, they were fighting all the time and chasing each other away. But I watched, I videotaped it over a couple of years, that when the foxes, raccoons, possums, and everybody uh, came up to feed at the same time with the cats, that all the animals actually made like a you know peace agreement, and they all just allowed each other, and they would eat out of the dishes together, the mamas would stay back and let, they'd all let the babies go in, and nobody messed with anybody. It was really neat. But I watched foxes, raccoons, possums, and cats eating together, but only when it was newborn babies and once they got old enough and, of course, started running each other off again. I thought that was pretty neat. Hey, thanks for that story, Mike. I really appreciate the call. Uh, I, I like hearing about stuff like that because I 
almost uh, couldn't imagine seeing all that. I think of these animals as not necessarily the kind that would get along. I've witnessed many encounters with, say, raccoons and cats, and uh, let's say the cats generally yield way, and uh, and the raccoons are able to uh, kind of have a go at whatever it is that they want. But what, um, you know, when we're talking about animals like this that might in the wild share an env- an environment, right? That is to say, I see raccoons in my neighborhood, and I've also mm-hmm. seen a fox in my neighborhood, and there's plenty of cats, um, armadillos and whatnot. I tend to think that they try to stay out of each other's way, right? Mm-hmm. It, and when it comes to our own homes, let's say you have an exotic pet of some sort. How might this pet interact with other traditional domestic pets? Um, generally, I don't recommend, you know, mixing the two. Um, obviously, you know, cats and dogs are predators and even ferrets. I mean, they're, they're predators. And I think we mentioned this on the rabbit show. They, ferrets can kill a rabbit up to three times their, their body size. And that's not a, it's not a trained behavior. That's an innate behavior that they will go after animals. So particularly small exotics that are kept in the house, I recommend not interacting with other uh, other animals. And then there are also some disease issues um, that can be transmitted one way or the other. Yeah. Um, these diseases, uh, let's talk about some of what those might be. Are these diseases that could affect people or really just our pets? No, they can affect uh, affect people. Um, the so-called zoonotic diseases are diseases that are transmitted from animals um, to people. A good example, um, and I'm not going to tell you, uh, I do like reptiles, and I recommend that they, they do, or some of the reptile species make very, very good pets. But one of the issues when reptile ownership is a, a bacterial disease called salmonella, so salmonellosis, which is contracted from salmonella species. And a good number of reptiles harbor this organism and shed it in the feces, and there's certainly been well-documented cases of transmission from reptiles to members of a household. Um, so we recommend not having uh, children under you know, six years of age, age own reptiles or people that are immunocompromised um, for that reason. However, reptiles do make good pets if you are hygienic, um, you wash your hands after you know, working with the animals, you don't wash their food bowls in the area that you um, prepare food and so forth. So now that just seems like good, <laughs> good advice to keep in mind anytime. What are some of the reptile species that would make good pets? Um, I particularly like, you know, if you're looking for lizards, interestingly enough, the iguana is not a good pet. A healthy green iguana as an adult, um, if you're providing the right environment, is a very aggressive, potentially very aggressive animal, difficult to keep. So the reptiles that have done really well and, and Almost domesticated is now because people have been breeding them in many different forms and color forms as morphs of things like the leopard geckos. Um, I like bearded dragons. They're very, very good pets. Um, They're really spectacular animals, but they're not aggressive to, you know, children or anyone who's who's handling them and so forth. So those are good. Snakes, you know, corn snakes, just the the regular corn snake is a good starter snake um, for a pet. Obviously not a large um, constricting snake, and also there are strict regulations for good reason for hounding venomous reptiles obviously don't make good pets. Right. Of course, they they don't, though uh, it isn't uncommon to find, um, in particularly in, uh, I've, I've been to sanctuaries and, and you know, rehabilitation centers and, and seen um, some 
some snakes mm-hmm. uh, that that are there, and uh, I didn't ask you know sort of why they had a, an enclosure with um, some sort of rattlesnake inside, but I'm sure they had a good enough reason um, for a number of uh, very practical and perhaps even obvious um, reasons. It's not wise to keep a venomous snake as a pet. That just seems like a asking for trouble. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's always the potential for envenomation, um, even accidental envenomation. Um, so, and a number of these species, particularly exotic venomous uh, animals, there are not antivenines available. So, yeah. you risk life and limb, literally, um, if you're working with these animals. But there are zoos and exhibitors, you know, just the same as keeping other wild animals, that it's certainly appropriate. Venomous reptiles are part of the natural environment, both in Florida and other parts of the of the country. And so they deserve as much respect as any other uh, animal that we work with. But as you mentioned, say, the bearded dragons, and I've seen bearded dragons kept as pets before, and they're really uh, remarkable little creatures. They're fascinating. You watch mm-hmm. them, and, uh, and they're really, really neat. Uh, are people able to keep those pets because both the animals biological needs like food and and water and whatnot can be supplied by human beings. And also the environment can be, you know, duplicated in such a way that the animal will feel comfortable enough. Yeah. And the husbandry is well worked out and you can go down to, as I said, one of the local pet stores. You can equip yourself very, very quickly to provide the the requirements such as they are source of ultraviolet light for the animals, you know, heat, and even the types of you know food and so forth. And now there are commercially produced bearded dragon food and uh, you know leopard gecko food yeah. and and so forth. They also also forgot another group of reptiles that I forgot all about that I probably the most interactive reptiles that you might get are some of the tortoise species. And so um, what I would recommend for pets were those leopard tortoises and uh, red-footed tortoises. There are there are many people breeding those. And they are a reasonable size to work with, and they're a vegetarian. And surprisingly, they do recognize their owners and will just like a dog or cat will come to you to, um, to get food and to, you know, interact with you. Amazing. Now, we think about our dogs and cats, of course, they're warm-blooded animals. They can survive in our environment under whatever conditions we feel comfortable, they presumably feel relatively comfortable too. My cat might want it a little bit warmer in the house than I do. But with things like lizards, you do need to give them a source of warmth, right? Yeah, and then they also, um, reptiles, because they they derive their body heat from the outside environment, um, they re- require a source of heat, but they also have what's called a preferred optimum temperature range. Um, So you need to provide that. So not too cold, not too hot. And this is where if you are thinking about getting a reptile for a pet, not all reptiles are the same. So you need to get that sort of information. What sort of temperatures do I need to provide? And a really important thing for normal vitamin D production in many reptiles is they need to have ultraviolet light of a certain spectrum. Uh, and in Florida, the good thing is we can put them outside. Um, but, you know, people that live up north, um, it's really important to get the appropriate lighting. Otherwise, you'll end up with metabolic bone disease associated with inappropriate or inadequate vitamin D production. Can we talk about cost a little bit, right? Because mm-hmm. 
it doesn't really cost me any more to keep uh, my cat than it would um, for a bag of food and regular veterinary care. But with some um, species, it might require a little bit of setup to make this habitat, right? So let's say you're going to keep a a small pet snake or you're going to keep bearded dragons or whatever. You want to provide them a proper enclosure and the lighting and whatnot um, Mm. requires a little bit of an investment. Um, Are there some that are fairly affordable and others that um, are less affordable pets to keep? I think when you start looking at what, you know, one area is if you're setting up a, a, an environment where an animal's either fully aquatic or semi-aquatic, then you end up getting into aquarium systems, which really can become very, very expensive, particularly if you've got a bigger uh, animal, say you want a big water turtle, um, then you're going to have to have a very larger or appropriate sized aquarium and so forth. Uh, a really interesting one of lizard species is a genus of uh, of desert-dwelling uh, lizards from Africa and the Middle East called the Euromastix, and they require a heat source of you know a hundred, you know, a basking area, like sometimes 120 or 130 degrees Fahrenheit, that they can go in and out of. So if you're in the middle of winter here, you got a heat source that's cranking that out. You'll electricity bill can certainly uh, rack up if you've got a number of them. So. Yeah, and of course in the, in the summertime when you're trying to air conditioner, air condition your home and then you've got this, you got this 120 degree source of heat just kind of working against your comfort yeah. at the same time. Um, we have mentioned in the course of this program today, animals, that it's probably not um, a good idea to, to have, um, b- broadly speaking. Um, when it comes down to it, um, what are some animals that maybe people think look really great, but you wouldn't you wouldn't suggest keeping as a pet? You know, one group definitely is primates. You know, prim- primate ownership that's a specialized area, um, and it, it's not appropriate for us to to be keeping them. I know you know marmosets and tamarins, which are small um, primates. Uh, uh, found their way into the pet trade, and then also some of the bigger primates, but they don't make good pets um, for many reasons. You know, one of them is disease transmission. They're obviously closely related to us, so more likely to transmit certain types of diseases. They also have very um, specialized, envi- you know, environmental conditions and nutrition. Um, other groups, you know, I've also found over the years, you know, everyone looks at a big macaw. Some of these big parrot species are really not appropriate. Uh, for captivity, we often see psychological related pr- uh, problems with those animals, and particularly since there are some, you know, parrot species that I would consider almost domestic. Well, they are domesticated. The budgie, the cockatiels uh, make very, very good pets. Um, you know, some of the small African parrots, such as Senegal parrots and so forth. Those are, uh, and and from South America, the Quaker parrot or monk parakeet. Although they are um, existing in the wild in Florida, so they have a good potential to become uh, an exotic pest um, if you release them or they escape. Great. I'm so glad you brought that up because one of the challenges uh, that you know s- state and national um, wildlife organizations have to consider is in- invasive species and how uh, it is possible – uh, entirely possible that animals intended to be pets get released into an environment in which they have no natural predators. Is that generally how it works? And then this can create trouble for the natural habitat? Definitely. I mean, the greatest example, unfortunately, in Florida is the the Burmese python is- issue in the Everglades. Um, I don't think those pythons will 
move to northern Florida just because of temp- temperature constraints. However, those animals appear to be having a major effect on the ecology of the Everglades, you know, the native uh, animal populations. But it seems just about every you know month or so I hear of a new exotic um, species that has established a population in Florida. Some other example, you know, so there's a good number of reptiles, other reptile species. Um, there's bird species, the Quaker parrot or monk parakeet. Um, if you go down to South Florida in particular, I know on the interstate uh, or on the uh, the turnpike, I think down the Juniper rest stop, there's a big, they make these big, huge communal stick nests and it's up in one of the lighting areas, but you can see um, those birds. Although, and then, they have impact on other bird species by competing for food and then also for um, roosting sites and so forth. We would hope that people would be responsible pet owners always, but it should be noted that you probably shouldn't just let your pet go if you can't keep it. Definitely not, you know, and so I think that's where some more of the exotic animal populations have probably come from people you know, saying, oh, well, I'm tired of this or release it or I don't want to, you know, kill the animal. I'm going to, you know, throw the animal out. I mean, it's like, yeah, South Florida is a particularly good example. But even up in this area, you know, aquarium fish in the rivers, um, birds in the environment. Um, there are certainly exotic reptiles even up in here or then. And the um, accidental introduction of like the Cuban tree frog in our area is having a devastating effect on our native tree frog species. But what it all comes down to, it sounds like, Dr. Hurd, is that if selected properly, Hmm. if the human involved is informed uh, and has really good intentions, that there are some exotic animals, quote unquote, that can be kept in relative um, happiness and, and health, good health. Yeah, definitely. And I, and I recommend it for those people that are interested. But the, as I mentioned before, the really important thing is to investigate before you go ahead and purchase something as sort of a on the spur, you know, spare of the moment um, purchase. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Dale Hurd from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine for coming back and talking to us. I appreciate it. Oh, it's great. Thank I want to say, I want to say thanks to Richard Drake and Sarah Carey. Animal Airwaves Live will be back next week with another episode. I'm Dana Hill. Have a good weekend.